Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, sessions will be taking place for those who are seeking information on the class action lawsuit against the Ontario government over the cancellation of the Basic Income Project. The Ontario Auditor General's report is out, and uh, we're joined by the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick. And tests show that the E. coli counts in Shadow Creek were extremely harmful, with one 900 times higher than acceptable levels. Yeah, that bad. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A story that we've been following for, uh, well, since the Ford government got elected, I guess, way back when. Seems like it was just yesterday, doesn't it? Uh, Anyway, the legal team representing the plaintiffs in a $200 million class action lawsuit over the early cancellation of the basic income project are now holding information sessions in Hamilton and Brantford. That's going to be coming up in the next couple of days. Uh, but we got the jump on it because we've got two of the principals involved in this, uh, actually three that involved in this whole process are with us here in studio. Uh, you know Tom Cooper, of course, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Thomas, good to see you again. Good morning, Bill. Also joining us, Stephen Morrow, who is a partner at uh, Cavaluso LLP, and uh, Kaylee Duffy, an associate with Cavaluso LLP. Uh, thank you guys for coming in today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. Stephen, let me start with you. Uh, where does something like this begin? We, we've covered this project. We, we covered the previous government's initiation of this project, the cancellation of it. Tom and I did a number of sessions. We talked to some of the people that were involved in that program. Uh, as you represent them, wh- what are first steps to get this thing rolling? Well, so we're, we're sadly past the point of talking about a basic income pilot program. We're now talking about damages for individuals who were on the program and saw the program canceled prematurely. So where we're at right now is we're in a full-fledged lawsuit against the government. We're at the early stages, and uh, the next big step Uh, that we're expecting is in June, we're going to be arguing what's called a certification motion. Uh, Largely what that means is we are asking a court to say that this is a proper vehicle, this class action, that that there are individuals who can act for the over 4,000 who we think are affected by this case. Well, and they obviously were affected by this, Tom, as you and I have talked about. I mean, there were promises made, commitments made by a government, and uh, uh, some people made some pretty significant changes in their lives to try to accommodate this thing and had the rug pulled out from under them. Oh, absolutely, Bill. And I think pulling the rug out from them is, is actually a pretty modest way to look at it. People's lives were absolutely devastated. Uh, we know there were families uh, who were on the basic income pilot who were hoping for a new start. Uh, they started dreaming about their future. Many moved into new rental accommodations, safer, uh, more accessible rental accommodations, and then found after the cancellation that they could no longer afford their rent. Others, uh, like Alana, who was on your show talking about being on the basic income pilot, had hoped to go back to school. She had planned to, uh, she had enrolled in Mohawk College, but after the cancellation, uh, found that was no longer feasible for her. So it was absolutely heartbreaking for those participants, and and I certainly hope they see some justice from this. Kayla, as you prepare your case, and I I know I don't want you to show all the cards here, et cetera, but how important are those stories from the people that were involved in the program? Well, one of the reasons that we've been, um, you know, making these visits to Hamilton, to Brantford, Thunder Bay, and Lindsay is because we do want to hear those stories and meet those people. Um, But, you know, the first step of a class action, uh, you don't go too much into those stories just yet at Mm -hmm. what Stephen was calling the certification motion, just to get it certified as a class action, to get the court's permission that we can proceed as a class action. Um, But that said, I mean, it's it's important for us to understand what people are going through, um, what people need from us, and, and that's why we're here today. When you get into that part of it, Stephen, uh, I, I, 
do you take the emotion out and this is what you're going to be arguing is points of law, is it? I mean, you are arguing points of law, but what you're trying to say to a, to a judge is the reason why you need to certify this as a class action is that 4,000 people cannot go it alone. You know, you can't have 4,000 lawsuits and 4,000 sets of lawyers. It's impossible. I mean, what, what Tom's talking about is individuals who can't afford rent, so they can't afford lawyers. So this is, you have to bring the emotion into it, because I think you have to explain to a court why a class action is going to be the only way in which justice can be achieved for people who are treated in this fashion. So no, I think very much it's impossible to divorce the law and the principle from the reality that individuals face if they don't get this remedy through this process. The government's stand on this, and I'm not going to pretend I know what the, their lawyers are going to say, but we talked to the minister just after they made the, uh, the, the designation that they were going to cancel the program. And, and I'll paraphrase this. Essentially what they said, Stephen, was like, we're the new government. We can do whatever we want. Uh, it's our policy. And that's that, that seems to be their stand. Yeah, I mean, it, it, their policy is they don't want a basic income for Ontarians, and I think they've made that loud and clear, although during the election they said they were going to keep the pilot going. But just skipping that, if they wanted to change, decide to change their mind, God bless them, they can do so. The difference here, or the, or the important piece here, is that it's not public policy to cancel a contract. right? It's not public policy to say to individuals who have committed to a program, oh, by the way, we're canceling the program with no remedy. I mean, we, we, people cancel contracts all the time, they, and, 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 and then they owe something to the individuals who they have affected by making promises and then pulling back from the promises. So, yeah, by all means, change your policy, go in a different direction, and we can have a debate about whether that's the right way to go as a matter of policy. But as a matter of basic first legal principles, the individuals, the 4,000 who signed up for this, were made very careful, guaranteed promises that have to then be fulfilled. Is there case law that you can fall back on, rely on for this? Well, I mean, there's never been a basic income pilot in this country before. No, not in this country, yeah. Uh, it's, and certainly, I, as far as I know, there's never been a basic income pilot in the world that has been canceled prematurely. So th- there, isn't, there isn't a case specifically on point. But principles of law like you should obey your contracts, you should follow through on your promises, are at least four or 500 years old, if not older. There was a, another court case, though, as we know about. It was well-published, of course, and that had to do with the cancellation of the cap-and-trade program, an environmental program, of course, that was instituted by the previous government. Uh, they lost round one of that. Uh, the, the court ruled the, uh, there that uh, they, they could not and should not do that. Uh, and and I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to draw a parallel here, if I could, Stephen, because the court ruling seemed to say, we're not saying the federal government program is better. We're saying that you canceled a contract and put an awful lot of people in harm's way because of that. That seemed to be the essence of it. Is Are you looking for a similar ruling here? I mean, there may be parallels. I think the difference there was that the, 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 the people affected by that uh, that decision to cancel hadn't been consulted yeah. before the cancellation happened. And so they, they got a court to say that, that that shouldn't have happened that way. But there's a similar principle there, which is when you draw people into a program, you're not just you're not just with with very specific promises of what a certain program is going to look like. You can't then back away from those promises without there being consequences. So this is not unlike uh, wrongful dismissal law. I mean, anybody can get fired for anything, but it's a matter of proper compensation. Yeah, I mean, save you know discrimination or certain things yeah. like that. Oh, yeah, the yeah. same the same principles apply. A contract is a contract, and if it's canceled, then then a remedy is owed. So, so we're working on that premise now. Uh, Tom, there was an awful lot of shock, obviously, among the community members that were involved in this program. How are they, how are they coping now, uh, waiting for this? I mean, this is, 
uh, law moves at glacial speed sometimes. It's unfortunate that that's the process. Um, They're going to have to wait. Uh, And quite frankly, Bill, it's tough. It's been a really tough year for those basic income participants. Uh, Many have fallen back into deep poverty, sadly. Many are using food banks again. Uh, We're going to be meeting with those basic income participants today. They're going to hear a briefing from uh, Kaylee and Stephen about where things are going in this process. Um, And we're also going to bring them together for for a meal and and, and talk about how their lives are going because we know uh, many of whom I've kept in touch with are are having real difficulties. Um, It's it's, it's challenging when you're promised something, you're promised a route out of poverty, uh, you're promised it's going to last three years and then that's pulled away from you and those dreams are dashed. And uh, people, people are depressed and uh, they're doing their best. Um, they're trying to find work. And uh, many, many of those basic income participants had jobs. They were trying to cobble together two or three part-time jobs to make ends meet. And they're still not earning enough at those jobs uh, to pull themselves or their families out of poverty. And, and so it is tough. Uh, we had hoped the provincial government would see the value and benefit of testing this idea of basic income and and really looking to see if it was a good alternative to our current and what I would argue are broken social assistance systems uh, in this country. So we're hoping those participants, uh, those former participants continue to uh, maintain some hope uh, that they'll see some justice at the end of this process. You mentioned about there was a commitment uh, during the campaign, the, the provincial election campaign that was, Stephen. Uh, that they had said at that time, and I still remember the minister saying, and, and then candidate Doug Ford saying that, yeah, we're going to let the pilot project run out and then we'll make a determination. Uh, that's a campaign promise, a political campaign promise. Uh, we've been trying for as long as I can remember to get politicians to hold up to, to campaign promises. Uh, it's a rather tenuous process to, to make sure that they stay to those commitments. But is that something that you can argue to say, look, it, you guys already said you were going to do A, then you went and did B. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt the case that the campaign promise was made. If the case was based solely on a single promise made at one point to get votes, so that, a, a case like that legally is, is always a bit harder to, to win. But, but the, re- the reason why you get people to sign documents, which is what happened here, is to say this is the commitment we give to you, and you give us a commitment, which is you're going to participate in the program as willing human uh, research subjects, is that it's known that governments change and make promises during elections. So you try and kind of tamp it down in writing and get people to sign up for it no, so that they have a little additional protection. So, yeah, it does help that the, that the, 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 the now conservative government promised during the election that they would maintain the pilot. That does help the case for sure. It's not the linchpin. Also, I think what helps as well is that it's not like it's not like the promise didn't make any sense. It's not like one of those promises where you sort of say nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we're probably not going to keep it. It's a, it was simply a promise to maintain a three-year pilot to get some information. I mean, most people would ag- would, 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 would agree that, 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 that basic income is a controversial subject, but getting information and knowledge is not. I think as a society, we tend to think that it's good to have information before making decisions. And I, I thought that that was what the, the conservative government promised during the election, was that they would keep the information coming. 
Well, and that was one of the reasons. It was Lisa McLeod was the minister at the time that canceled the program, and her explanation at that time was that the program wasn't working, uh, <laughs> notwithstanding the fact that they didn't have any data one way or another on that. But that just that was their excuse at the time. But Tom, sub- subsequent to that, there have been some studies that have been done, and there have been some interviews done with the participants that paint a much different picture. Oh, absolutely, and we were able uh, last January to grab the baseline survey um, because the bu- government had to make it public, and, and we found. Uh, that those individuals who participated in the basic income pilot, uh, 50% were either working or looking for work. Uh, The other 50% uh, tended to be uh, persons with disabilities or students uh, going back to school or or family members uh, who were were helping an ill or disabled family member. And uh, and so these were these were individuals who were hardworking. Uh, They wanted to improve their lives. They wanted to better their lives. Um, and, and there was absolutely no data to indicate that this project wasn't l- working. Uh, Lisa McLeod at the time used a multitude of excuses in the days after the cancellation of the basic income pilot. Uh, it wasn't working. Too many people were dropping out of the pilot. It would cost too much. None of those uh, had any truth to them. Uh, we found uh, from our research and, and from continuing research uh, engaging former participants uh, that it was actually working. It was having a profound impact on their lives. People were moving out of poverty. They were able to restore their dignity again. Uh, they were living in, in better housing, uh, safer housing, uh, more affordable housing, and they were eating healthier and staying healthier. And, and that would have a profound impact, I think, on on certainly their well-being. And, and, and it would be helpful for taxpayers, too, because less money going to health care costs. Kayla, as you go down this road, it seems to me as if there's, there's two parallel paths here. One is the, is the legal aspect, uh, a breach of a contract, I guess, for, for a layman like me to throw that out. But the other is, the, as Tom has just articulated, the efficacy of the program itself. Do you need to marry those two ideas to try to, to make a convincing case? You know, at the end of the day, a contract is a contract. Yeah. I think the fact that there, you know, that there was no data backing up that the program wasn't working, and in fact, the stories that we've heard are very much the opposite, um, goes to show just, you know, how how devastating it is that they canceled the program, both for the people that were on it, and because now it's information that that we'll never get. Where are talk to us about the process? You mentioned this is this this next hearing is going to be a big part in those. Let's let's assume that you clear that hurdle. What are the what are the next steps and what kind of time frame are we looking at here? Well, so uh, we we argue the case June. We get a decision after that. It'll take the judge some time to render uh, render his decision. Mm-hmm. And uh, and let's so let's say we get the decision in late twenty twenty. At that point, we move into a process where we see every government document that is relevant. It's called the discovery process. Mm-hmm. That is going to take a long time. And then after that, then we go to a pretrial process to actually set up our trial. That, that's, that, that is the typical expected process. I mean, I'm not going to lie to people. I'm not going to give people a false hope that we're going to be done this whole thing within a year. This is going to take several years uh, for sure. How many of these cases, uh, I own that this one is unique, I understand that, but mm-hmm. of a similar vein, how many of these actually go to trial? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that if, if you're successful in this hearing, that all of a sudden there's probably going to be some discussion back and forth. I mean, there might be. I, I, I would like to hope that, that there would be. Uh, I, I mean, I, 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 as I, I've said several times, I have every confidence the case is, is a strong one. And if you have a strong case and you have vulnerable people who are affected, I, I would think it's, it actually behooves the government to say, yeah, we're going to maintain our policy, but we're also going to provide proper compensation. I, I think that's something that, that they will have to come to the table and offer. 
at some point, and, and often do, and often do. It's just a question of when, it's just a question of how, and, uh, and obviously we're, we're open to those discussions. You mentioned a couple of different options that may be on the government's plate right now. One is proper compensation, and obviously you're going to be talking about that, but what about the reinstitution of the program? Is that a stated goal here too? I mean, that is not a goal of the class action for the simple reason that no court can order it. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the, the, court, the court would explicitly tell you that you know, we, we can't put the program back in. There's the other problem, too, which is if you give these 4,000 people the program starting tomorrow, how many people are going to trust that the program is going to work? So the idea of the program is not that you get money every month, but you get money every month knowing you're going to get it the next month, the next month, the next month for three years. So you can make a three-year plan. Any of these individuals who are put on back on the program are going to rightly think, I can't trust that this money is going to keep coming in for three years or two years or one year or any specific, specific point in time. So they're not going to change their behavior. And so you're not actually going to study it as a basic income. What you'll be studying is people who are living month to month on what happens to be a little bit more money than what they were getting before they got the money, which as, as good as that would be for individuals would not yield the data. So as as uh, th- that's that's the, 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 the that's the the sad thing about this is that by so, so the government soiled the process here. Then. They they they've they've made it impossible. Even if a court could order it, which they can't, but even if the government wanted to change its tune and actually have a pilot, it's too late. It's too late for at least for these four thousand. They would need to have a completely different pilot, probably different people, different guarantees. Maybe maybe this time they put a, a seal on the document instead of you know instead of what they put on, just to make it really clear that they're going to pay this money this time. Uh, it, it does soil the pro- process, as you put it. Absolutely. Well, it might be a moot point too, because I don't get the sense that they have any intention of, of, of going backwards and doing this thing again. It just seems to be contrary to their philosophy in situations like this. Tom, we got about a minute left here. Uh, the participants that you mentioned, there's going to be uh, some workshops in Burlington, or in Brantford rather, and in Hamilton. Uh, what's the, what's the attitude? Are, are these people willing to to be part of this to, of this part of the action? Oh, I think so, and, and uh, they're thrilled to have uh, Kaylee and Stephen in their corner. Um, they 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 have high hopes that it will be successful, but they under I think they understand it's going to be a long process as well. And while many of them are are I think understand uh, that they won't see a return of this basic income pilot project, many are continuing to advocate and and speak out uh, for a basic income on a on a universal level and in trying to encourage the federal government to implement it uh, widely. And, and so what, what we see are, are many uh, former participants who've become strong advocates for the idea of basic income and, and really trying to talk about how much it benefited their lives and, and how it would help other Canadians as well. Uh, we wish you luck. Uh, we've followed this program since its inception, I guess, from our previous government and talked to some of the participants. And uh, we saw just how crestfallen they were when the government made this announcement. Uh, and this is a matter of justice, I think, in doing the right thing. Uh, Stephen, Kaylee, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for And uh, continue good luck. I'd like to stay in touch with you as this process unfolds. We'll be back. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Auditor General's report was released yesterday. This is, the, of course, the Ontario Auditor General's report. This is an annual process. It's a nonpartisan process. Uh, no matter who is in government, uh, there's an analysis done of how they're spending our money. And, uh, well, there were some concerns obviously raised in this report, and uh, we're going to talk about some of those key issues. And to do that, uh, we are so pleased to welcome Ontario's Auditor General uh, Bonnie Lissick back to the Bill Kelly Show. Bonnie, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. 
Well, thank you for inviting me again. Can I ask you maybe to start off on process? As I was thumbing through some of the, the topics here, I want to get into the, the climate change thing in a second as well, of course, because I know you spent a fair bit of time on that. But some of the other items, uh, for instance, the, the, the condition of, of the jails and the, and the judicial system, uh, long-term care facilities and things of this nature, through the course of the year, Bonnie, there have been some studies, sometimes by media people, uh, exposés about the conditions here. When you see those sorts of things, do, do you and your staff red flag that and say, that's something we need to look into? Um, you know, that would be one source of information. Um, we have, um, you know, a huge database of information that dates back many, many years, uh, you know, um, probably 20 years. And so we can, we do uh, track the history of audits and organizations. We track money, where money's spent, staffing, um, uh, research in areas, what other provinces are doing in the area. So there's a multitude of things that feed into how we select audits and when we conduct them. I mean, because we've obviously in the Hamilton area here had some problems well, well, with our jail down on Barton Street here with overcrowding. Obviously, there's a there's a drug problem, drug smuggling problem that's going on, and 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 you outline an awful lot of these things. And but you also talked about the judicial system, uh, the fact that a lot of these people that are jail and and sometimes sometimes sadly they become uh, victims of, of of the drug smuggling that goes in there. Uh, they haven't been convicted of anything. They're awaiting trial, and that's an ongoing problem right across the province, isn't it? Yeah, we were surprised to see that. We were surprised to see the high level of uh, remand inmates in the system. Um, you know, within a year, they could flow through probably 80% of the people through the system or remand. Um, the average holding of inmates, the, the percentage that are remand is about 71%. So these are people that have been charged but not have had their time in court. Um, a lot of what we're seeing is it is the same uh, people going through the system. We found that you know there are some people that have been charged 13 times, convicted six times, and so our key message in all of that is, although they spend short times in the jail system, um, there needs to be some programming to address the repeat offenses um, that are being. Uh, uh, conducted by these individuals. Well, here's hoping that uh, that there's going to be some reaction from the government on that particular aspect of it. I also want to talk about the long-term care facilities because, again, we've had some concerns and actually we've had some deaths uh, in, in a couple of the long-term care facilities here in the last couple of years. And I was glad that your staff uh, decided to, to spend some time on that. Uh, we're talking about food quality here. We're talking about staffing conditions and, and really safety issues, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, our focus on this particular audit was on nutrition and, yeah. and food and the long-term care system. We've looked at the inspection of long-term care homes in, in you know, about three years ago. Um, but in this one, we were, I think what, what we were particularly, um, what noted to us was that the, the average age has not increased. It's about 83. The number of people in long-term care homes hasn't increased. It's about 77,000. But what has changed is the degree of care these people need because a higher percentage, around 64% of the people in the long-term care homes have a form of dementia, which means when it comes to food and nutrition, uh, they need more assistance. And uh, so a report looks at you know, the quality of food that they're getting, and they're getting high-sugar food, um, less-fiber food, um, and then we do find that in some cases where assistance needed, there's, you know, there's not enough hands to help. Uh, well, the one instance that jumped out at me was uh, some of the food that was being served was three months past its best before date. Uh, I, I get a little paranoid about that, uh, actually. You know, Bonnie, I, I, if it's one day past, I toss it out, but three months past, yeah, you're, you're gambling there, aren't you? 
Well, you know, it's it's not so much that the food would make you sick. It's just that the the nutritional value of it is gone. And, yeah. and we point things like that, not to say it's rampant in the system, because it's not, but just to point out that it happens. And even if it happens to a few people, it's not pleasant and it's not good. So, um, you know, we use an example to kind of um, a little bit jar people that, you know, are involved in a long-term care home system to, to make sure that there is a discussion of this and that it doesn't happen as much. Uh, let's talk about uh, the climate change aspect of this. Uh, you've actually, there was a separate volume of it with the climate change. It's it's a key issue. It was a key issue in the federal campaign just a couple of months ago, of course. And it seems to be a, have pushed itself into the top three concerns, along with the economy and health care, uh, among Canadian voters and certainly among Ontario voters as well. Uh, the headlines uh, through most of the papers I read this morning, Bonnie, suggest that uh, your study says that uh, the government's climate change plan is not based on sound evidence. Explain that, if you could. Yeah, I mean, I think everything needs to be in context, right? And so, you know, they can't, the government drafted a plan after, I, I think very quickly, after they were uh, brought into uh, to be government. And so... Uh, they projected that they would want to achieve an emission reduction by a hun- uh, by 2030 and take emissions in Ontario down to about 143 megatons. Right now, Ontario is sitting at about 163 megatons. So what we looked at, and we have a figure in our report, figure two, is what are the plans, like what, what needs to be or what is in place, what was planned to be in place to get there. And um, we're just we're recommending that they just look at all their calculations and and their projections on their initiatives to make sure that they're grounded in in solid evidence. I mean, I do know that during the course of this audit, it was represented to us that it's an evolution, right? This plan will be updated and changed as they get more information and and focus more on where they want to um, achieve those emission reductions. Uh, which will likely be in the obviously transportation area, but but having said that, uh, we pointed out uh, areas that uh, they need to improve on in terms of getting back up for the way they're going to achieve the emission reductions. One of the love about doing these reports or reading your reports every year, though, is is as you separate uh, the, the wheat from the chaff. Here, this is not the political bombast that says, "Oh, we're on track, everything's going to be fine." You actually look at hard numbers, and even as as you mentioned in the report, even the environment ministry themselves. Uh, their numbers and their data indicates that the government's off base on this. Yeah, I think what happened, I mean, they, you know, they work for the government, right? Sure, Administration yeah. reports in, and I think what's happened here is they just, uh, they didn't seem to have enough time to do the uh, modeling that they needed to or to put, uh, to take into account the public consultation information. And so I think... Um, because the plan was posted on the registry, the Environmental Bill of Rights Registry, and there's been a lot of response to it, that that information will likely, you know, to be fair on this, will likely be taken into account in, uh, you know, sort of regrouping and looking at this plan going forward. The thing about this is, you know, we're talking about a 2030 target, so um, it's not like there's not enough time to get there. Um, it's just, um, I think, obviously, uh, you know, more, more uh, concrete evidence would be, would be good. Well, the analysis here, I think, is, is the key element to this. I mean, when campaign promises are made, and that's the politics of it, of course, uh, many of us wonder sometimes, and it's not just this government, it could be any government at all, but especially in this issue of climate change, which is so essential, uh, sometimes you wonder when they start, here's the stated goal, and you wonder, well, how are we going to get there? Oh, it's going to be fine. You know, we're going to do this, and they sh- they show these huge incremental uh, moves t- in that direction. Uh, and, but when you do the number crunching here, sometimes uh, there's there's a difference between what they th- say they're going to do and what they're actually doing. And it's it's not necessarily because they're not committed to it. It's just that the numbers may be a little off. 
Yeah, yeah, and we we did see this. You know, we looked at the previous climate change about uh, report or, or the. Um, uh, the plan uh, about three, four years ago when we did the audit of climate change in the office as well. And we noted at that point in time as well, the projections that were being used um, were not as well based on sound evidence. So it's not, we haven't, we've seen this before, um, you know, but we're recommending that, you know, going forward, um, it's time to get it a little bit more um, uh, science and evidence focused. Well, and I, I guess even the the clause that were about electric cars that you talked about here, they talked about a, a, a pretty significant increase in in the purchase and usage of electric cars, uh, which was not unlike actually the projection that the previous government, the wind government, had made. But the, the, as you mentioned in the report, the government nixed all the, the incentive programs for people to move forward in that direction. So how realistic are those numbers? Yeah, you're right. It was a carryover. Um, when we had them rerun, they use a model to do this, and when we had them rerun the model with sort of the new policy changes, um, that was one of the areas where instead of having a uh, emission reduction of about 2.6 megatons, it, when we re-estimated it, we would say it would be zero. And so that was one of the adjustments that, uh, that we've suggested be uh, considered going forward. When you do something like this, Bonnie, what what is your expectation that the government's going to embrace this and say you're right, or maybe we have to look at this differently? You know, I think we remain positive when we put recommendations forward and we get our reports accepted and the recommendations accepted. Um, you know, we're we're hopeful that they'll be implemented, and so um, you know, I have nothing. I've I have uh, no reason to believe that there that the recommendations that we put forward in the report won't be implemented. Um, you know, we've had very d- good discussions, and and you know, to be fair, I think there is a desire to um, get it right. Well, and I guess that's uh, in the eye of the beholder. I know that uh, there was some. Uh, <laughs> Some some differences of opinion, maybe, uh, between your office and, and the previous uh, finance minister uh, about some of the number crunching and some of the math in situations like this. And I guess that's that's part of the politics of this. Oh, oh you mean on the uh, the financial statement? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it wasn't—you know what, that one— that one, to be honest with you, from our perspective, was a fairly simple one because the accounting, I mean, I think I've, I've always gone into more of the technical, but the simplistic part of it is the accounting for the pensions the way it was, which was an audit finding, not, not a changing of my mind, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it was an audit finding. And really, if they'd continued down the path of booking the accounting the way they did, they, they were creating a structural deficit. And so when there's a deficit reported, um, the number would be wrong, and they would be uh, borrowing to spend more money on operating programs, which isn't the way it should work. Uh, some ministers uh, tend to get defensive about this, as Mr. Souza did in that situation, uh, even the environment minister and the energy minister, I guess, with your report yesterday. But i got to tell you, from my standpoint, one of the most gratifying things I saw, as you did uh, roll out the, the, the story about, uh, about long-term care facilities and some of the concerns that you raised that you saw in this, the immediate response from the minister, Christine Elliott, was we need to do something about that. In other words, she seems to be embracing these findings and saying, okay, we, we, we can act on this and we can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've, we've seen, um, you know, messaging throughout the public sector to, like you say, embrace our audits, embrace our findings, embrace our past recommendations and go forward and implement them. There's been more focus on that. And I think, you know, as an office, we're, we're really happy about that. Again, the reports and our recommendations were all... Uh, very well accepted by by the government, by the administration, 
And so, you know, we're hopeful going forward that, you know, they'll be incorporated in their in their in their action plans. But uh, again, at this point, have no reason to believe that that wouldn't be the case. Well, obviously, yeah, the the politics of this now will be thrown speeches and, and policy announcements that are going to be made in this. And uh, the, there's, I didn't get any sense that there's any condemnation of any of these government programs. It's a matter that they need tweaking and 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 maybe a, a closer look at some of the numbers. Yeah, I think the one the one that we found really disappointing though was the ODSP program mm-hmm. because as an office there there have been recommendations made in 2003, 2008 to actually make sure that people who are receiving ODSP are actually entitled to it under the law so they have, you know, the financial need for it, but they're also they also have the physical disability. And um you know, because if if you get that right, then you either have more money to give to the people that actually need it or more money for other programming. But we do see there's a lot of weaknesses in that program, and and there is, you know, um, I I think there is evidence that people who don't require ODSP are actually receiving it. Uh, And again, uh, interesting to see that. We just, uh, before you joined us, did a segment about the the, the cancelled basic income program too, which obviously has a a financial impact and, and a real human impact as well. Uh, and those are sorts of things that the, that the governments have to have a real uh, a look at, I guess, as these things go forward. Uh, but you've given us fodder for conversation here, uh, certainly, uh, and the government <laughs> uh, a chance to, to respond to this as well. Bonnie, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the work that you and your staff have done on this, and thanks for the time today. Well, thank you very much for uh, for uh, making your your listeners aware of our work, too. Okay, we'll Appreciate talk again soon, I'm yeah, sure. Thank thanks, you. Bonnie. Thanks. Bonnie Lissick, of course, Ontario's Auditor General. Uh, the report, by the way, is on their webpage if you want to go and have a look at it. It's pretty extensive, and it is long, but it's a, an interesting read. And and as I say, it's nonpartisan. It's not as if they're saying, hey, you know, these guys did it right, and this government's doing it all wrong. They just they look at numbers, and they look at the efficacy of the programs themselves and uh, give it an unbiased view of what's going on. And uh, it's good news. I'm, I'm glad to hear, uh, as Bonnie Lissick told us, that the government seems to be open to listening to some of these suggestions because we have seen examples in the past where they just bristle at this and they take this as a personal insult if this, any of the programs are being questioned. Uh, that's not what the purpose is. It's, it's to open our eyes to this sort of thing and to hopefully maybe open the government's eyes to it too. So we'll see how they respond in the uh, the days and weeks ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is getting worse uh, by the, d- the the day, by the hour, I guess, as we get more information about Sewergate. Uh, tests released yesterday show that harmful E. coli counts in Shadow Creek uh, spiked dangerously. At one point, 900 times higher than the safe levels for paddling. And over the four-year period, 9,000 times higher than the threshold for safe swimming. Laura Babcock from Power Group has been following this story uh, from its inception uh, almost, what, two weeks ago, three weeks yeah, ago? two weeks ago. It feels Every like a day, year ago. And we, I remember I, I just talked with John Best from the Bay Observer about this yesterday. I said, is this going to go away? He said, no, because we keep learning more about this, and it's never good news. Well, there's two parts of this story. As we know, there's Sewergate, which is the mind-blowing incompetence and arrogance by the city when it came to actually monitoring the sewage and listening to people who went to them and said there is a huge problem here in this water. We had an Indigenous woman who actually protested it. We had people who went to the city over and over, and the response they got was, can't be possible. You know, their technology said it's not saying there's a problem with that particular gate. 
total arrogance and incompetence, and I can't understand why staffs haven't been fired for that. That's Sewergate. And as you said, we just learned the extent, the mind-blowing extent. I mean, people weren't swimming in that water. We've long known that we couldn't go in that water. But lots of people paddle in that water. Sure. Lots of people. There are children's programs in that water, Bill, and 900 times the level for paddling. I I mean, it's bordering. It feels on criminal. But that's Sewergate. I have to say what bothers me as a political watcher and not someone who used that water, uh, especially, is the Coots cover-up piece of this, the decision to cover this up. I find so egregious and what puts this in the stratosphere of Hamilton scandals, and that's saying a lot. And we found out since I last spoke with you from the Hamilton Spectator, we just learned this, that in fact, the following people knew before the last election. Fred Eisenberger, Jason Farr, Sam Marula, Chad Collins, Maria Pearson, Brenda Johnson, Judy Partridge, Lloyd Ferguson, Tom Jackson, Terry Whitehead, Arlene Vanderbeek. According to documents released by The Spectator and an Andrew Dreschen column, they were briefed. They had a verbal briefing in a meeting before the last election. They didn't know it was $24 billion. Apparently they knew it was $16 billion, but they decided to not bring it to the electorate. And Jason Farr Councillor Farr said that he believes it would have affected the polls, but that's just politics. So we are dealt with not only terrible news about how bad the leak was for the water contamination, but also just how brutal the cover-up was that they knew before the last election. I was hoping that they didn't, Bill, but they did. Well, times two, because when the new council was elected, this, this report was reintroduced and they decided to sit on it again. Uh, Absolutely. The new councillors have a lot of explaining to do as well. And we also know that the new councillors, Maureen and Narinder, are the reason why we even know some of the timelines of these meetings, because they've pushed for more transparency. We know that Brad Clark, who wasn't part of the pre-election cover-up, because he wasn't on council at that point, he has been working to try to get some changes in place, and he has been communicating on this. And we also know that John Paul Danko, a new councillor, has also said he takes responsibility for what he's done. So I am not happy with the new councillors, and they're going to have to answer for the 11 months that they didn't tell us either. What we have seen, though, is a distinct difference, that they are communicating about it. What are the old councillors doing? Where is the mayor? Has the mayor come back on your show as this escalating crisis builds? Not not on this show, no. As there's national attention to this everywhere we go? I'm hearing from clients as far away as Vancouver asking how this is possible, why we're not in the streets about this in Hamilton. Well, Laura, you're hearing about it because CTV, Global, and and CBC are carrying this on their national newscast. And the Toronto Star has been on this. The Toronto Sun said Hamilton failed this. The Premier, Doug Ford, said that Hamilton failed this. And we also know that their ministry knew about this and should have told us as well. The fact of the matter is, this is a national embarrassment for Hamilton. This does so much to not just hurt our brand, but to hurt our citizens. And I think it's outrageous that our mayor, as the leader of this city, has not done the honorable thing and resigned. Fred Eisenberger should resign for this. When you break the public trust, a real leader stands up and says, you know, I will run again, maybe get reelected again, maybe I can build your trust back. But how can you lead for three more years when you're caught in this kind of a cover-up? It's just really outstanding. It's really uh, remarkable, and we're not the only people who see that bill, as you mentioned. The whole country is looking at this saying, how could this have happened, both in the sewer gate, in terms of how they dealt with the sewage, and in terms of the Coots cover-up before an election. This makes it an election scandal now.
There was a period of time when I was on council that I sat on the Conservation Authority. And, and i got to tell you, Laura, it was very instructive because I learned a lot of things about the community I'd lived in all my life, about watersheds and about water systems, etc. Uh, and it's intricate and it's amazing. I mean, we talk about the city of waterfalls. That's because we have so many underground creeks and Sulphur Creek is attached to this, everything else. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is not a singular incident. I mean, this is uh, impacting this whole system. Uh, and what galls me about this is this is the report that was just released yesterday. Uh, talks about, you know, the 900 times uh, higher than threshold for, for paddling and 9,000 times higher. This is data that was collected during that four-year period. And did nobody see the spike in these numbers? I, I can see them right now because I've got the I've got the data right here. Well, no, and nobody, uh, somebody read this stuff and somebody decided, well, so what? Well, and so we're getting our facts as we know from what the Spectator is doing. And I just have to say, outstanding journalism on this. They they keep re- bringing us this information from these leaked documents and also from the stuff that Council in their three thirty a.m. meeting finally decided to give us a little bit of a snapshot at. Uh, and so what I can read, I'm no environmental expert or watershed expert, but what I can glean from it, Bill, was that the groups responsible for monitoring the water knew there was a problem. The RBG kept testing going, what we're trying everything mm-hmm. and we can't figure out what's happening. And that's where the sewer gate part of it is so egregious because there were people who were going to the city. There was even a city person on that group that saw these levels, right? But they did not bother to track it down. They say, well, manual inspections of that gate weren't part of their, their, you know, their schedule. Why, who why, 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 who cares? That, why not? Well, exactly. When not, somebody says, listen, I'm standing right here at Coots Paradise. It smells like feces. Yes. You, you know what you do? You stop there and say, okay, let's go back up the system and, right. until, until you find the problem. They had people going to them. We've heard audio recordings of people going to the city and saying this. We've had people say that they could smell it, that people were feeling ill from this, the, the toxic fumes from it. I mean, we have been getting story after story after story. And why didn't they do anything about it? You saw the RBG say, you know, we, we were just looking in the wrong place. We were doing everything. Well, you know what? Someone knew where that place was. The city was told over and over and they decided to uh, not explore it, not check every single gate, not even... So, the argument that the mayor made that, you know, that was never a pristine waterway to begin with, and yes, there are other ways that it gets polluted from other things, that to me is such an irresponsible response to the community. The community is saying you had warnings and notices and the smell and the visuals and a protest by an Indigenous woman on a watercraft to let you know, and you did what? You didn't so bad enough that they can't manage their own their own systems that we pay them to manage, and bad enough that the that the head of that department hasn't been fired yet, which would just be basic that we have an immediate investigation and any staff that was part of that goes. But on the political side, not only did they decide on multiple occasions, we now have a chronology of all the meetings where they were briefed on this because Narendra Nan and Maureen Wilson pushed for that chronology to come out. Not only did they know multiple times what the problem was and didn't tell us, but as the information comes out and the community gets more and more betrayed and, and angry, Bill, and this is not, as Lloyd Ferguson said, the media whipping up fury. People are furious because of the betrayal. As it gets worse, where is our mayor? Where, where are they? They're having other council meetings on other things. They're discussing other things. They're posting about other things. Where are they to say to the people of this city, yeah, wow, we really screwed up. And I'm sorry, an apology press release saying you're going to apologize is not an apology. Uh, I took exception to the, some of those remarks, and, and it wasn't just Councillor Ferguson. Some of the other ones, too, uh, have made remarks like that. And, and the point I made on the air is we are not whipping up frenzy. We are reporting frenzy. <sighs> Uh, I am reflecting this. I'm not writing these emails and tweets that I'm receiving every day. 
the citizens are. And, and I'm simply saying this is not going away. And it's not going away because people are really peed off about this whole situation. My producer at the O Show said that she'd never seen anything like the letters that are coming in to the station for the O Show. And I don't know what other shows are covering this as well. And we've seen it in pages of rage in the Hamilton Spectator day after day after day. And I know uh, when I see a new breaking element, I tweet about it and the response to that is massive. And we even started a petition a few days ago. Cameron Croce started it. A lot of us helped with getting it uh, written and getting it out there. It's at change.org. And what it does is it just says the public needs an investigation, independent public inquiry into both Sewergate and Coots cover-up. And uh, last time I checked, we were over 1,200 people who had put their names on it. And that's only been in like 48 hours or something, Bill, because people need a place to put their anger. We need the ombudsman to investigate provincially. We need to find out how to hold these people accountable. I don't think three more years of those same names that I read sitting around that council horseshoe and deciding on a whole bunch of other stuff and not addressing this and acting as though it's what, water under the bridge? That stinks. That's not good enough. Who are we? Are we fools that we put up with this? What city would put up with this from those leaders? Some people, like uh, a prominent lawyer in town, Bob Monroe is saying that there should be a by-election called. The province should force a by-election because they knew before the election, those incumbents. Yeah, well, as we said, and we are just going by recent history, nobody's going to resign uh, because there's no pressure. I mean, there's there's a desire on a lot of people's mind, but there's, there's no pressure. Well, there's no shame. Yeah. There's no shame. If there was shame, they wouldn't be sitting around the council chamber just yesterday making, you know, watching videos and laughing during delegations. They wouldn't be giving us this attitude of contempt. And you know what? Maybe you can't pressure a leader to step down, but I can tell you there have been other leaders that we know of, Bill, in this city in the last 20 years that said if something happened, they would step stepped down from politics, and they did it on principle. It's rare. But at a level this bad, I would just hope that Fred Eisenberger realizes the the public trust is gone. The moral authority to lead is gone. You might be able to technically eke it out for three years, but at what cost to our community? You know, where do we show even the rest of the country that somebody who's elected in this city takes this seriously to the point where they're willing to put their own paycheck on the line. I don't know. Uh, we're not seeing it. I'm not surprised we're not seeing it. But I just, I, I think it says a lot about the people who uh, are just continuing on with business as usual. Well, and it's created a certain cynicism. And I think there's a great deal of justification in this. I mean, this is the same council that, that, that declared a climate crisis. And, and we thought, okay, fine, these guys are aware of what's going on. While they were voting on that, they knew this was happening. I know. At the same time, but they weren't telling us about this. And, and to, to the point about that, well, it was never a pristine body of water. Uh, it could be, except for things like this happening. I, I can remember not too many years ago where, where Coots Paradise was a cesspool, and it was a dying ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And it's coming back because of a great deal of dedication mm-hmm. and help from senior levels of government to make this happen. This is a huge step backwards for that system. It's an environmental disaster by any any expert's uh, discussion on it. I'm not using hyperbole here. I'm not ramping this up. I don't get paid to do this, as you know. Mm-hmm. right? I've got other work to do and a family to raise. Uh, but my, my children are being raised in Hamilton. And it is an absolute affront to the citizens of this city to both cover up something that, even though they claim it was fixed, we've seen those levels were dangerously high. And putting a little sign here and there and being forced by the ministry to let us know and then putting it in a lunchroom, that's simply 
outrageous. And it's not what we have municipal councils to do. Their job, you were a councillor, you know it's the public safety is job one, right? So they failed us on that front. But then to engage in this, well, we don't need to tell them until what the ministry forces us to when the report comes out. Uh, Are we beneath hearing about something like this? Clearly, some around that, that horseshoe think that we are, or they care so much about their political necks that they, they kept this from us. And so, you know, they may stay in their seats. Some may even get reelected. Who knows, Bill? But for, I would think, the rest of their lives, they are going to be part of the Coots cover-up of Sewergate. And I don't, you know, that's not something that I would just want to live with. Well, and I can't get into the heads of the people that are around the council table right now, but I mean, there's at least some people that are looking at this right now and saying, you know what, let's run out the clock on this. Of course. Christmas holidays are coming up. People are going to get tied up. They'll forget about this and it'll just fade away. Of course they're thinking that. And why wouldn't they? It's worked on so many other scandals. Uh, We are almost a year since we got the extreme step of a judicial review coming in for the Red Hill. Uh, And that's going to cost us at least a couple million dollars, no doubt about it. It, but there is a judge who is going to have the capacity if he sees something that has to do that looks bad that's tied to Sewergate uh, or Coots cover up. He's got, a, I, as I understand it, the ability to expand his review to look into that. But it can't be influenced, so he's got to proceed with Red Hill as it's set out. Uh, why that hasn't started yet, I don't know, but I think it's quite urgent that it does. We need to start seeing the the results of that process get in place. But they're not going to run out the clock on this bill because. They they went further than they have in other scandals where it was just incompetence and wasting our money. This this is Sewergate's already cost us a million dollars, right? Between legal fees and their initial attempts at cleanup, uh, it's not just about the waste of our tax dollars. It's the fact that we now know because of a whistleblower, a hero, that they lied to us. They decided as a council not to tell us the truth about something so important. We've got two minutes left here, but I want to get your uh, read on something else too. And it's a cumulative thing here. And we, uh, you and I talked about this a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. a breach of trust. Uh, you've got the Red Hill report, which was not public. We've got this now that they mm-hmm. sat on for a number of years. The question I'm getting from an awful lot of people, and I think it's a very valid question, is what else are they holding back on? Are, are there other things? And, and they, the answer might be none, okay, but but I'm skeptical now, and I think everybody should well, be skeptical right now. What what else is in that bottom drawer in somebody's desk? That we Somebody reminded me that there was an Andrew Dreschel article that the, that Fred Eisenberger, before the last election, asked Michael Anlauer from the Bulldogs to hold off on the arena thing until after the election. And we know that Michael they, told me that. Right, and we know that they held off on the Red Hill. We know the report. They knew about it before the last election, and we know that they held off on now this on the, the this terrible twenty four billion spill of mixed sewage. Um, so we would be completely foolish and irrational not to think that there are other things. If they could sit on things this huge, if they could ask someone as prominent as Anlauer to to hold off till after the election, what else have they done to stay elected? We've got incumbents that have been in for decades. There's a reason for that, Bill. And as a city, we're finding out it's not just the fact that they're good at retail politics. Maybe it's the fact that there are secrets being kept from us. And as a city, we should not put up with it. Well, and therein lies the frustration, because if you lose trust, uh, where are you? 
Right. You are running a city as um, where every single decision you make is going to be, people are going to not trust the, the, the evidence behind it. They're not going to trust the disclosure around the issue. They're not going to trust the fact that uh, you have their best interest at heart. I mean, I, I, who would want to, you know, have, have Fred out of ribbon cutting or some of these counselors? Uh, there's, there's so much uh, hurt and it's real hurt. This is not politics. I'm not going to run for mayor. I have no political ambitions. You can take me out of that, that theory. I simply want our elected representatives to not just represent us in our safety, but to treat us with dignity. There's, and there's two sides of this, too. I mean, the staff members or whoever that was, was responsible for this did, did not act on this and did not do the proper due diligence on right. this. And the elected officials that basically said, I want to cover my butt because I'm the one that's going to get the phone calls. Uh, so we uh, It's again. pretty crappy. And to a lot of people, it looks like flat out corruption. And it doesn't make this a place where people want to invest or people want to move to. I'm hearing a lot of that, which is really sad. After all the years we spent promoting Isle of Hamilton and, and our fantastic decade of opportunity. We're the ambitious city. Well, you know what? Let's clean up the rot at the core. Laura Babcock from Power Group. Uh, thanks again for coming in today. Sure. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.